Hello, my dear friends. In honor of the upcoming festival of Purim, we have a special surprise for you, a special treat coming from the Torch Hunt Houston, Texas. There's a special brand new Purim podcast that I recorded with my dear brother-in-law, the famed genius, the brilliant Rabbi Shmuley Botnik. So he actually did a podcast for us in the past. I think he did it on the Parsha podcast channel. He is actually a lawyer from Cincinnati, but he's really a giant Torah sage. And he is a very creative mind, a very nimble and agile mind. And he has a lot of brilliant insights that uh, we share, he shares with me very often. And he prepared something really special for Purim. It's a little bit Kabbalistic. It's a little bit more advanced than what we typically try to do. It's one of those podcasts that you probably should listen to once or twice or maybe even three times to fully understand what he's trying to convey. We recorded it together. We recorded it remotely. I was in Houston. He was in Cincinnati. And I was kind of serving as a sounding board. You know, he wanted to just speak it out. So there was me and a few others on the call. But it's really it's really his idea. He gets all the credit. He started off with a battery of questions and then developed a comprehensive theory of Purim, the festival, the deep insights and the deep ideas that are underpinning the entire day. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. As always, my address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And here it comes, the Kabbalistic conflict of Purim with Rabbi Shmuley Botnik. I hope you enjoy. And as always, my address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Abu Wolby, for inviting me to this podcast to share some Purim-related ideas. I hope they will be inspirational. I hope they will be understandable. That said, let's let's jump right into it. I want to begin by asking like a whole series of sporadic questions that just kind of span like the entirety of the Purim story. There is no apparent sequence to these questions, but as you'll see, it will be a, a single idea that we will try to use to answer these questions. Sounds like a plan? I love it. Let's go. All right. So the Gemara in Megillah, Daf Yud Beis, is really, Daf Yud Beis and Daf Yud Gimel is really like the primary sources for all of the like, Midrashic interpretations that we have of the Megillah. So I want to go through a few of them. The Gemara quotes the verse in Megillah that says, the Yain Malchus Rov. It was a, uh, a great abundance of royal wine at the party, right? At Achishverish's party. And the Gemara there says, This teaches us that every single uh, attendant of the, of the party was served wine older than himself. So if you were 30, the wine was 31 years old. 50, the wine was 51 years old. So my question is like, what is that all about? What was the significance of that? Was that just some sort of like presentation kind of thing? Or was it, were there some sort of like spiritual significance there? I love it. That's question number one. That'll be question number one. Question number two, also related to the, the drinking thing. The verse in Megillah tells us, kados ones, that the drinking was kados. How do you interpret the word kados? Rabbi will be? It was I mean, legal, I guess the word dati, right? Means in, in line with the law. But in, in this context, it means more like it was, um, 
by, by their own volition. It was right? consensual. Want, it was consensual. That's what we're looking for. Consensual. Ain ones. It was not forced upon them. So it seems like they were very intent on making sure that this wine was not forced upon them. And I want to know why. I mean, kings force their subjects to do things, right? What, what would be the problem with forcing them to drink wine? Why did it have to be consensual? Okay. Next question. We are taught um, also by the, uh, the Gemara and Megillah, Dafir based, that Akhoshverosh wore the clothing of the Kohen Gadol at the party. Yes. Sounds like totally bizarre. You know, ostensibly you might say he was just kind of like mocking the Jews or, or trying to signify that he has, you know, somewhat conquered the Jewish people or supplanted um, the Kohen Gadol. But I want to try to see and explore if there's something a little deeper there. Why in the world was Achishverosh wearing the clothing of the Kohen Gadol? So we have we have this party. It's an unusual party. Everyone's being given wine, but it's all optional. But the wine's got to be older than you. And the king is wearing the the garments. The high priest. What's going on with this party? What's the significance? Three questions. Let's go. Question four. Let's keep rolling. We are taught that uh, on on the seventh day of the party. So uh, I think the Gemara explains that this was actually Shabbos, and the Jewish people weren't at the time participating at the party. But there was this like drunken conversation going on at Achashverosh's party. With a very degrading kind of uh, conversation going on where they were discussing which women are the prettiest, right? Some were saying it's the, the Medii, some were saying it's the Parsi, right? What nationalities are those in media and, and Persia? These are different countries and everyone's touting the, the beauty of the women of their particular place. Is that right? Right. That's what's going on. And then Achashverosh interjects and he says, well, my wife, right, Vashti, She's neither of those two. She's a Kasdi, Kastian, I guess. Then he says, Ritzonchem Lerosa, do you want to see her? And they say, yes, we do want to see her. Uvalvad Shetehearuma, provided that she is undressed. She has to come completely undressed. And then the Gemara goes on to tell us that they invited her. She refused to come, but she, uh, she got saras, right? She was struck with leprosy. So, Again, ostensibly, I think it's easy to kind of just understand this Gemara as just being a bunch of very vulgar people who are drunk in their cups and having a very uh, vulgar kind of conversation. But you have to understand that if the Torah is telling you this, there's there's got to be something spiritual here. There's got to be a message here that, that has some sort of relevance. And I also want to understand why she got Saras. I mean, we know leprosy is, is kind of a punishment usually for Lashon Hara, right? We don't even really see that Vashti did anything wrong at this moment. She was a very wicked woman. But like right now when she was being invited to this party, we don't find that she did any particular Avera certainly to deserve leprosy. And I don't even know. I mean, Rabbi but you might know this, but do non-Jews get leprosy as a punishment? I thought that's kind of like a... I think there are some examples uh, of it, like Naaman, etc. But again, I'm totally uh, ad-libbing over here improvising over here, but I, I believe the Ramban says in the book of Leviticus that leprosy as a spiritual ailment is only when the Jewish people are in a very high level. So you're saying in general, leprosy as a as a physical manifestation of a spiritual blemish is something that you only get if you're very spiritually sensitive. So you wouldn't expect someone like Vashti to have a manifestation of this kind of ailment that really only strikes at people when they're on a very high level. Right. 
Okay, very well said. So why would Vashti get Saras at this particular juncture in time? Okay, so that's kind of all the questions I have on the party. But but moving along on other aspects of, of the Perm story or the Gemaras in Megillah that discuss the Perm story, uh, there's an interesting Gemara on, on um, Daf Yudalid in Megillah, which, page 14, which makes a Kal V'chomer. They derive that there is some sort of obligation to commemorate the story of Purim, and the way they figure that out is by means of a Kal V'chomer from Pesach. They say as follows. The story of Pesach was a, a, a redemption, it was a, it was a miraculous transition from servitude from bondage to freedom okay it's a story that commemorates the exodus from slavery uh to, to becoming a free people and the story of the megillah the story of perm is a transition from death to life and so since from death to life is um a lot more much greater salvation it's a it's a, it's a much greater salvation it, it is certainly more deservant of commemoration that's what the Gemara says. Pesach, it was a salvation. But we were alive either case. We're either a slave or not a slave. We're free people. But regardless, we're alive. And we made such a big deal if we were, you know, in Purim, it was a transformation from being dead to being alive. For sure, we have to make a celebration. That's what the Talmud's saying? That's what the Talmud's saying. So the obvious question here is we weren't dead, right? <laughs> we weren't dead. We were alive. We just, you know, there was there was a decree of death which we miraculously circumvented, but it doesn't seem accurate to say that we were dead and that we transitioned from death to life, right? It means that there was, there, there was a decree, there was the specter of potential death looming over us, but how does the Talmud say that we were saved, transformed from dead to life as if we were dead and we were resuscitated? When it was just the threat of death, it's not the same thing as actual death. You see, the words of the Talmud are a little bit inaccurate. If the Talmud says we were dead and now we're alive, well, that didn't didn't really happen. We were almost dead. There was a threat. There was a degree. There was the potential. There were the grounds for us to be dead. But we didn't actually – we weren't actually dead and therefore the transformation was not from being dead to being alive. And therefore, the analogy of the Talmud is not 100% precise. That's correct. Okay, two more just general questions. Several times in the Megillah we find a reference to clothing. Vatilbash Esther, Malchus Esther adorned herself in clothing. We find Mordechai also gets dressed in clothing. What's this getting at? Again, and, and I've seen it said that, that that's possibly the underpinnings for the custom of wearing a costume on Purim because there was just a lot of clothing going on in the Purim story. Um, but what does this signify? What is this clothing all about on a deeper level? And finally, I want to discuss the verse all the way at the end of Megillah, right? We say this on, by Havdalah every week. It's a very famous verse. The Jewish people merited light. What sort of light did the Jewish people merit at the culmination of the Purim story? All right, is that enough questions? For I you love it. It's, it's seven questions by my account. Four questions about the feast that kicks off the whole story. We have question number one. What's the idea of drinking wine that's older than you? Why is that so imperative? What is the 
focus or why is the air there an emphasis on not compelling people to drink? They have to opt in. Achashverosh is wearing the garments of the high priest. Why is that significant? What's the meaning with the whole dialogue of who's the most prettiest woman? Oh, I'll prove to you that Vashti, my wife, is the prettiest. And But no, she has to come in undressed. What's the meaning of that? Those are the four questions on the banquet. And finally, we have three general questions. A, the idea of the transformation from, from being dead to being alive, it seems to be somewhat inaccurate. The emphasis on clothing. And finally, the Jewish people merited light. Seven questions. Do we have an answer, Rabbi Bonnick? If you do, let's go. I will try my best. So let's begin with a quote from the Chassam Sofer in Parshas Tazria. So Parshas Tazria is one of really the two parshios that discusses leprosy. So we're, we're going to kind of uh, focus in on the leprosy uh, component to the seven questions. Uh, we'll start with that. And what we know about um, leprosy, just a very, very basic synopsis of the procedure, is if someone is if someone is struck with leprosy or he suspects, he or she suspects that they are now uh, a Metzorah, right? They're now a leper. They have to appro- approach a Kohen. And it is up to the Kohen. It's very interesting. You don't have too many things like this. It's kind of up to the coin's discretion to decide whether or not to declare this as an actual sign of leprosy or not. Is this a sign of impure leprosy or is this a sign of pure, you know, just some sort of physical ailment? So the Chassam Sofer teaches us a very deep and very esoteric uh, concept as to why the Kohen in, in particular is the one who can uh, prescribe whether or not you're leper. Oh, and I, I think most importantly is the part that even if he tells you that you are, that someone is a leper, after seven days or after 14 days, it is up to the Kohen to say, okay, you're good now. You're pure. You're tahor. So it's like the Kohen calls the shots, which is a very uncommon idea, right? Like, you will never find a parallel like that. Like It's not up to the rabbi to decide whether or not something's kosher, right? He has to follow a certain, a, a certain, a, a certain body of law and he can, he can rule based on that, but it's not his call. Right here, it's the Kohen actually calling the shot. So the Chassam Sofer explains that the Kohen has something very special going for him. The Kohen wears these garments. He wears these big day kahuna. And he says the big day kahuna, where they originate from, is that we know in Genesis, after Adam and Chava eat from the Etzadas, so they get thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And then it says, Hashem gave them kosnos, or he gave them garments made out of skin. The word or with an ayin is, is, um, means skin. So he says, the Chassam Sofer, that the big day kahuna, the priestly garments, are some, somehow reflect or correspond to these, you know, heavenly, garments that that God gave Adam and Chava. And he says, the power of these garments is to transform or with an ayin into or with an aleph, which means, or with an ayin means skin, or with an aleph means light. Or with an ayin is really a perversion of or with an aleph, meaning Adam, before he sinned, he didn't 
look the way human beings look today. When you look at a human being today, you see essentially uh, just you see skin right on the on the outside. That's all you see. Before he sinned uh, with the Eitzadas, you saw light. You saw or with an aleph. So we transitioned from or with an aleph to or with an ayin. And the idea of the garments of the Kohen is to try and backpedal that, to try and bring a little bit more light, a little bit more or with an aleph into, into the or with an ayin. Well, let me see if I understand this. Adam, before his sin, is on a very lofty level, very spiritual, full of resplendent light. He does the sin, and now he's downgraded, and he has to be clothed with leather or skin garments. And the word for light and the word for leather or skin, it sounds the same. It's both in Hebrew, that is, of course. It's both the word or... But they're spelled differently. If you put an aleph at the beginning of that word, it means light. If you put an ayin at the beginning of that word, again, those sound the same in the Hebrew alphabet, but they're spelled differently. But if you put the ayin, it spells or with an ayin, which means leather or skin. So that's the downgrade of Adam. And now we have the garments of the high priest – it's also a garment, but the objective of that garment is to restore the original garments of light to take the, if I'm saying this correctly, I don't know, but to take the downgrade to reverse it and to once again bring back the R, the light with the Aleph to restore the garments of light. Is that right? That's right. But I, I didn't really conclude. So the the idea is that when someone gets tsaras, right, when, when they get leprosy, they contract le- leprosy, what's really going on is that even though we all have an external appearance of ore with an iron, we all, we're all encased with skin, we still have some sort of remnant of light to us. I once heard that that's the reason why animals are scared of human beings. They, they sense this kind of spiritual uh, halo that surrounds us. But when someone gets tsaras, even that starts to fade. I mean, even, even that remnants of light starts to fade. And so that's why you need to go to the Kohen who kind of has this, he's endowed with this power to bring the light back, to bring the ore with an aleph back onto the ore with an eye. So what Saras is, is a further diminishment of the original light. Brilliant. Understood? Yeah, total genius. So the Chassam Sofer says, when he quotes this, he, he ends off with the words, And I learned this from the Shla, the Sefer, So I went up and I, I checked the Shla, and I looked around, and he says this idea in a few different places. And I found one place where he kind of expounds on it. And he says that the word MS, truth, which is, you know, God's signature, right? Chassam Kadesh Baruch Hu is MS. So that has an aleph in it, an aleph followed by the letters mem, tough, followed, which, which mem tough spell mace, which means death, right? You have an aleph followed by a mem and a tough. And he says, when you play around with the aleph, when you mess up the aleph, you're left with mace. You're left, you're left with death. So he, he goes on to say that the, the serpent, when he convinced Chava, convinced Eve into sinning, he did so by by way of saying Lashon Hara, right? He, he used uh, a negative speech of some sort. And 
we, as we know, Lashon Hara brings Torah. Someone who speaks Lashon Hara is inflicted with Torah. So what the Nachash did was the Nachash the tampered, the, the serpent tapper, tampered with the Aleph, which is the, the first letter of the word MS. And so what he, what was left with is the word Mace. And that is why death was decreed upon humanity as a result of the sin of, of the Eitz Hadas. So you hear that's like an additional idea to what we're already saying. So playing around with this Aleph, when you say Lashon Hara or you do something that brings Taras, what you're really doing is you're bringing death into the world because you're removing the Aleph from the word Emes and you're left with Mace. So again, this is a reinforcement of the same idea that that Aleph is is this vitality, it's this light, it's this life. And then when Adam sinned, it was the equivalent, or it was, it was the result of Lashon Ra, which is bringing in death, which is also the diminishment of the light and the tampering with the special skin that we have. And that results in, in death, both of the individual and, uh, of, so to speak, collective humanity. And the Kohen can undo it both with the garments and with the oversight and the diagnosis and the, I guess, the treatment of the Tsaras to restore the Aleph and thus to take a, take away the death and make a truth. That's right. But now what I want to, I, I want to get into is, I want to try to understand this kind of on, on a little bit more of a practical level. What is this Aleph and what is this Ayin and what does this transition and this downgrade really mean? Right, right now it just sounds like very, very lofty. You have this Aleph, which means something. We're not really sure what it is. Somehow it turns into an Ayin. I want to try to interpret it a little bit. Uh, in, in a way that's, that's kind of more understandable. So the idea of an Aleph, and I've, I've seen this in many Sfarim. I don't know if I put it in the source sheet, but the idea of an Aleph, and we know that the Torah starts with Bereshis, right? So the first letter in the Torah is a base, right? The first letter in there, you would have thought almost intuitively should be an Aleph, right? Because the Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, but it's not the first letter. First letter is a base. So the idea is that the world the Torah's description of the creation of the world begins with creation. In the beginning, God created. But there's something that really, that really is the precursor to creation, and that is the will to create. Before God created the world, God wanted to create the world. That desire, that inner, it's what's called ratzon in Hebrew, that inner desire to create the world is symbolized by the letter Aleph. Okay. And in Kabbalistic terms, we call that the keser. It's the crown. So the, the spheros, which is a very, uh, which is a very, um, Kabbalistic framework of, of the God's method of creating the world and God's method of, of running the world. It starts with something called chachma, which is wisdom. God used wisdom to create the world. But before the wisdom came that inner will to create the world, which is called the keser. It's the crown on top. It's the crown above everything else. And that's the letter Aleph. And, and that like precedes the Torah, is that what we're saying? It, it in a way precedes the Torah. I mean, it precedes the Torah in the sense that we don't see it in the Torah. We don't see it explicitly. It's kind of like an undercurrent throughout the entire Torah is God's will to issue whatever it is that he's saying. There's, uh, beneath that is his will to do that, right? God God says, do something. Well, there's there's a will for him to tell you to do that, right? So the, the rut zone is kind of like the 
the soul. Is it like the why? If if Bereshis, creation, that's what God did. The olive, so to speak, is why God did it. Is so the it, why exactly? Okay. Yes, it's the it's it's kind of the the soul within everything that we perceive. So the the aleph in a word is is entirely internal. It's something that we cannot see, but it has to exist. Okay. We find in in various zohars this idea that there was an or that predated the world. You know, even though it says God created the or, it says vayahi or and that's a few verses after the beginning of the creation. The Zohar tells us that this light really predated the creation of the world. And that what God was doing was he was just revealing it. It wasn't revealed until day one. But it really existed before day one. And again, I think that's the or with an aleph. That's that aleph that predates the creation of the world. So the idea here is that... Aleph represents an inner ratzon, an inner will. Okay? When you tamper with the Aleph, what you're trying to do is you're trying to tamper with the inner will. And what happens then is it turns into an ayin. An ayin means I, right? The word ayin in Hebrew means I. The I cannot perceive the internal, right? It's impossible. If there's a, a box and something in the box, you cannot see what's inside the box. You only see the outside layer. So when something transitions or downgrades from an aleph to an ayin, what that really means is there was a downgrade from something being internal to becoming external. That's how I want to understand this idea. So when someone speaks Lashon Hara, right? So when someone sees a Jew do something and says, oh, that Jew did something bad, what you essentially did was you didn't look at that Jew's inner ratzon because we know we have a principle of ritzoneinu lasos ritzonecha. Every Jew wants to do good. That is their will. Their will is perennially, perennially to do what's right. And if we do something wrong, that's from an external force. But if you look at a Jewish person doing something wrong and you say he did something wrong, you say that affirmatively, what you did was you disregarded the internal and you only focused on the external, i.e. you confused the internal Aleph with the external ayin. Does that make sense? Everybody? Very advanced. You got to dumb it down for me. So the, the Aleph is very internal. It's internal. And internally, like our will is to do good. And if I, if I ascribe to someone else bad things and I look at them, just like the, the, the letter Ayin and the word to s- describe the letter Ayin is Ayin, which means an I, you can only see what's outside of you. You can only see the external. So by, by me, Judging someone negatively, I am utilizing the ayin and I'm ignoring the olive, and that is where things go awry because I'm ignoring the olive and I'm inviting all these terrible things to happen, all this death and destruction and saras, etc. That's right. I think you did a pretty good job there. Well, I'm, I'm pretending. <laughs> <laughs> So what happened was we are taught. So the serpent in the Ganeden, he said Lashon Hara. He spoke um, words that were that were evil, and and Adam and Eve fell for it in a sense, and thereby they their light was diminished. The or with an aleph was significantly compromised, and they became human beings as we know them 
you know, which are essentially, well, at least from an outside appearance, we are clothed in skin, in or with an ayin, right? We lost that or with an aleph. We're no longer those incandescent beings that we once were, and we're now people of, of flesh and blood, right? People of, of skin with an ayin. The idea of clothing, at least in its most philosophical sense, is to try and reverse this. It's to try and cover over the external, and it's counterintuitive. We think of clothing as external. That's not true. Clothing is there to clothe the external and refocus on the internal. That's the idea. And the big day Kohen Gadol, I think the idea of it is, it's very, very, it's, it's, it's described with a lot of, of very particular detail in Parshas Tetzavah. I think what's going on there is God saying, everything I'm telling you to do is this is what is what's going to reflect and what's going to bring out the internal you. It's going to bring out the Aleph that's inside of you and move away from the ayin that currently encases you. So you say you said something a little counterintuitive. We think of clothing as being external because you wear it externally. You don't wear clothing internally, even if you have braces, right? It's all external. But you're saying it's actually no, it's the opposite. It's creating a new external so that you can transform yourself. You can redirect yourself to being more internal. Is that right? Yes, I think that's like, right. Like the animals, animals don't have clothing. Why? Because they don't have this aspiration to have something internal. They're just external. And therefore, they don't need clothing. We are adding clothing, so that will be our external, but ourselves will be the internal, like you said, where we want to swap away the iron and get the olive. Precisely. And now, this was all a result of the evil doings of the serpent. Now, we know there is a lot of overlap or, or a lot of association between Haman, the villain of the Perm story, and the serpent, right? The Gemara in Chulin on page 139 says, "How do where is Haman hinted to in the Torah, right? Not in the Megillah, in the actual five books of Moses. And the Gemara finds its source in the word Hamin Ha'etz. So this is when God is speaking to Adam and saying, did you eat from the Etzadas? And the way it's uh, the the way that's written in the Torah is the word Hamin. Did you eat from? Right, Hamin is did you from? I guess right. Hamin hates. but the word Hamin, if you if you pronounce it differently, is Haman. Right. So that's the kind of where Haman is sourced, and all of the more kabbalistic, more philosophical commentators explain that it's not just that that's where he's being hinted to, but that's kind of the source of his soul. The source of his evil soul is in the sin of the Eitz Hadas. He's directly associated with the serpent and all of the evil that the serpent brought into this world. That said, kind of what he was trying to do was exactly what the serpent was trying to do. The serpent was trying to remove the Aleph, remove the Or from our lives, turn us into, into beings of mere flesh and blood, lose our internal Aleph, become external people, and that is what Haman was trying to do as well, because Haman and the serpent are, are really one and the same. Can I just ask a, a dumb question? Forgive me. The Torah, we got it at Sinai maybe a thousand years before Haman and the whole Purim story. So what are you, what are you telling me that Haman appears in the Torah? Just simplify it for me. Well, what does that mean? Well, the, the idea is that even though human beings are born at certain 
points of time and, and we're bound to time and place, our souls are not, right? So there's, let's say, this idea that all of us, you and I and everyone listening to this, uh, were at Mount Sinai. What, what does that mean? I wasn't. I was born in 1991. Now, the answer is I was born in 1991 in a human form, but my soul existed forever. I mean, from, from I don't even know when souls came into existence, but it's been before 1991, right? So Haman's spiritual existence was around for a very long time. Mm. And it came in probably around the same time as the serpents because they are bound together by the same evil source. I would have given a different answer. <laughs> I would have, I would have said, well, the Torah is prophesying about what's happened in the future. The Almighty knows the future and therefore he put a little hint that you'll discover later on. We put a little hint in the Torah in the whole story of the serpent. He put a little hint, a little wink, wink, Hamina eights. There's going to be someone named Haman and his roots, so to speak, or his spiritual roots are found here, but I like your answer better. So we'll stick with your answer. All right. Okay. All right. I think this is enough to kind of circle back and try to answer up all of the seven questions. And, and you'll see how that's going to work. Well, before before I do that, I, I just want to say, so the, the Gemara actually says, the Talmud tells us that there was no one who knew how to speak Lashon Hara. No one knew how to speak Lashon Hara like Haman did. He was the world's greatest expert at Lashon Hara. And what I think that means is not just, you know, we think of Lashon Hara kind of as like this gossip, you know, you meet someone on, on the street and you say, did you hear what so-and-so did? It, it's a lot more than that. If you read the the works of the Chavetz Chaim, right, who obviously was, he was the world's expert in not speaking Lashon Hara. He, he speaks at length at the beginning of his works about how the this Satan, the, the Satan in, in heaven, all day long, what he's really trying to do is he is trying to point to the flaws of the Jewish people. And basically take the role of a, of a prosecutor and make the argument that the Jewish people should should be annihilated or they should be severely punished. That's what the the Satan does all day, every day. And the Chavz Chaim says that when, some, when you say something bad about a Jew, you are giving energy to the Satan. You're like taking sides with the prose, with the prosecution, and you're giving him vitality, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Essentially, you're, you're hurting no one more than you're hurting yourself. And what Haman was trying to do was exactly that. And, and there's a lot of uh, very deep ideas I saw. The, the, you know, we know that Haman wanted the Jewish people to bow down to him. Right? It sounds very just like egotistical, right? But th- there was a lot more t- to it than that. He, he was actually trying to show, look, the Jews, um, th- they are idol worshippers. And, and not only – this is not a new thing, right? They, they worship the, uh, the, the golden calf right? Ba- uh, several hundred years prior. Right? It, he, everything he was doing was trying to – make these prosecutorial arguments claiming that the Jewish people do not deserve to be the chosen people. That was what Haman was trying to do. In other words, according to everything we said until now, he was attempting to entirely remove the Aleph from our lives. He was trying to make this argument that we are not, we don't have this internal Ratzon. We don't have this internal Aleph inside of us. We are external beings, uh, and we should be treated as such. That, that was what Haman's entire mission was. Okay, so let's go back. They invite the Jewish people to a party. We don't really know what this party's about. It's like very, very obscure. It's very mysterious. Why are they inviting us to this party? What's going on at the party? Well, one thing the, the Megillah tells us very clearly is there was a lot of wine. 
A lot, a lot of yayin. Happy Wolby. Pop quiz. What's the gematria of the word yayin? Okay, let's see if I can figure this out on the spot here. So yayin is spelled with a yud, and then another yud, and then a nun. So a yud is the tenth letter, so that would be the number ten, is that right? Aleph is one, base is two, etc. Tess is nine, yud is ten. So if you have two yuds, ten plus ten is twenty. After yud comes, comes kaf, which is, which is twenty, and then lamid, which is thirty, and then mem, which is forty, and then nun, which is fifty. So yud, yud, nun, ten, ten, fifty, seventy. Okay. Now, and what is the gemachi of the letter ayin? Well, ayin, so if nun was 50, samach is 60, ayin is 70. Oh, I like that. Okay, well, I see what you're going That's here. exactly right. This entire party was about the number 70. Ooh. And by the way, the number 70 is the 70 nations of the world. They are the 70 external nations of the world, the Jews being the Aleph in the middle. The entire party was about giving the Jews as much wine as possible, trying to inject as much 70 into them and bring them away from the Aleph, make them lose their position as being the the internal nation, the nation of Aleph, and try to transform them into another nation of Ayin. Wait, just slow down here for me. What do you mean when you say the 70 nations? What does that mean? There's 70 nations in the... Biblically, there's 70 nations. It's always referred to as the Shivim... Umais, right? The seven nations, nations okay. of the world. And does, does that include the Jews or not include the Jews? That does not include the Jews. Okay. Okay. We're surrounded by them, right? Because we're in the middle. And we're not a 70. We are one. So the 70 nations are all 70 nation of, of iron. And they're trying to drag us to become like the 70 by, Im- by imbibing wine, imbibing the iron which is 70, and that's the whole purpose of the party, and that's the symbolism of the wine. The wine is this 70, which is this skin, which is this covering of the light, which is this saras, which is this death. Okay. Now, we asked the question, why was it, I think our first question, or one of our first questions was, why was it that the rule was, give the Jews wine, but make sure they drink it willingly, right? You can't force it upon them. So we asked, why not? I mean, kings force people to do things all the time. They force us to pay taxes, right? So force us to drink wine. If you want us to drink wine, force us. The answer is forcing you defeats the entire purpose. All right. Now, I, I heard this idea from a rabbi named Rabbi Avram Tzvi Kluger uh, in, is from Israel. He's, and he said as follows. Forcing us would defeat the whole purpose. Because remember, the Aleph is that internal Ratzon. The Ratzon to always do good. He wants us to forfeit that, to give it up. And show that, no, we are now external beings without that internal will to do it. So if he forces it upon us and we're screaming, no, no, I don't want it. So what did he gain? He's not trying us to just, he doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He wants us to actually uproot our internal will. So if he forces us to do it, he hasn't gained anything. He hasn't accomplished what he set out to accomplish. The Aleph is still intact. The ruts of the the will is still still intact. intact. Now, we asked a question, why was the wine older than ourselves? So if you're 30, the wine's 31 years old. Okay, now here's a stroke of brilliance, if I may so, say so myself. Um, <laughs> the, um, the Sefer B'nai Yisachar, right? one of my favorite Sfarim, he talks about the month of Elul. And the Elul is referred to by the Talmud and by many, many works as the Yemei Haratzon, the days of will. 
And he says, why is it called the days of will? Why is it the Yimei Haratzon? So he, he explains as follows. He says, God created the world in Tishrei, right? The month following Elul. So he says, as we discussed earlier, before God creates, God has a will to create. That's what we discussed earlier. Before the Bays, the Beratius, comes the Aleph, the will to have a Beratius. So he says the entire month of Elul was the month in which God kind of dedicated to ramping up the will. I want to create. I want to create. I want to create. Then comes Tishrei and he's like, he created. So that's why Elul is called the Yimei Haratzon. So I want to extend this idea and say, every human being, every Jew, is a mini miniature world, right? Nefesh achas Yisrael ke'olam malei. A single soul is like an entire universe. So I want to suggest that before God creates any single human being, before God set out to create Yaakov Wolby, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, he said, I want to create Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. And he had a good reason to want to create Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. so but, kind. <laughs> <laughs> so before God created you, there was this, this a, a certain amount of time. I don't know how long it is. Let's say it's a year where he's like, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And then he created you. And I want to suggest that this inner will that you carry within you, Rabbi Wolby, comes from that will that God had to create you. That's where you got it from. The reason why you have this inner will is because God had an inner will to create you. And he endowed that inner will inside of you. So Haman and Achishverosh, in their, in their depraved ingenuity, they said, we got to take this wine, this iron, and we got to use it to uproot the will inside of every Jew. But that wine... It has to come from a period in time where that will originates from. So if you're 30, the will to create you comes from 31 years ago. So we got to get wine that's 31 years old. It It is pretty genius, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. I'll take that. Well, again, so we're assuming that the will that we have, that good part that we all have within us, that part that someone who speaks the Shonara – is ignoring that olive that's within us. That's that will that predates our existence. Because that's the will of God is extended within us. That's to me, that's the big insight. That the will of God to create a person or a thing or an entity, that itself is the same will that the person, so to speak, adopts, so to speak, or is extended into the person. And therefore, everyone's will to do good, to be righteous, to be holy, to be special predates their existence. And if that's what they're targeting, if that's what they're, you know, so devilishly targeting, they have to get the wine, which is the yayin, which is the 70, which is the ayin, which is the R with an ayin. It's got to precede that to attack the ratso and the aleph at the time where, so to speak, it originates. That's right. It is pretty genius. What can I say? You are the right. uh, more clever son-in-law, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just gets better. Um, we asked there, – there's this very uh, decadent, very depraved conversation that, that they have at the party. And and we said it's, it's almost like – I don't know if you can ask this question. But it almost seems like inappropriate for the Talmud to share this conversation. It seems – it just seems so lowly, right? A bunch of drunken – People's, you know, arguing which women are the prettiest, right? Why is the Talmud sharing us, the, sharing this with us? So I think you have to read it very carefully and you will see the most stunning revelation. So let, let me just read uh, the words of the Talmud, okay? Um, so they're arguing who's, who's prettier? Um, some say the Parsios, right? With the, the Persians. Some say the, the Midios, the, the, the Medes, the Median. What, what, what are they? Medes, Medes. The Medes. So then Akashvera says, well, my wife is neither Mead, she's neither Persian. Ella Kasti, okay, she's Castian. Ritzon Chamlerosa, do you want to see her? Amrulo, 
And they said yes. But she must be Aruma. She must be undressed. I think there is a lot of depth here. He says to them, look, I spent this whole party trying to uproot the will, the inner will of the Jewish people, that Ratzon of the Jewish people. Now I want to know what your Ratzon is. Tell me, what is your Ratzon? Reveal to me what is the inner will of you, my friends, my non-Jewish friends. And they say, the Rosa. That's it. To, to be depraved and to be promiscuous. There's nothing more than that. Our Ratzon is exactly, you see what you get. There's, we're not hiding anything. And then they say, and guess what? She has to come here undressed because we don't believe in clothing. We don't believe in the idea that clothing are trying to hide the external and reveal the internal, which is what we were trying to argue is the idea of clothing. We don't believe in that because we don't believe there is an internal. Our Ratzon, our internal and our external are one and the same. Ratzon Cham Lerosa, what's your Ratzon? They say exactly this. Nothing more, nothing less than what you see externally. Now, why was Ahasuerus wearing... Uh the garments of the high priest. Oh, so he was wearing the garments of the Kohen Gadol precisely for this reason. Because he knew that the garments of the Kohen Gadol have this power. They have this power to transform the ayin back into an olive, to backpedal it, to undo the harm that was done. So Achshosh took it. He said, I'm going to wear this. I don't want you guys to have it anymore. I need to take this power away from you for me to accomplish what I need to accomplish. He's commandeering the the power to uh, to thwart what he wants to do. Exactly. And what happens to Vashti? At that moment, she gets Tsaras. Of course she gets Tsaras. That's the whole idea of Tsaras. Is Tsaras is when that Aleph starts to melt away and turn into an Ayan. That is what Tsaras is. At this moment, when Vashti essentially wanted to concede with their will. She wanted to go down there. She wanted to go down there. Aruma, undress. She wanted to declare that there's no more Aleph. There's no more internal Ratzon. Everything is external. That's when she got Saras. So she got what she asked for, basically. She got, she got exactly what they were asking for. Exactly. The diminishment of the internal and that whatever flicker or spark of light that was left is now gone as well. And that, you know, the splotches on the skin are, are what uh, emerges. That's right. We asked Rabbi Wobi, and you can let me know if I skipped any of the question. We asked why would the Talmud say that we that the the um, story of Purim was a miraculous salvation from death, from death to life. It was an exodus from death to life. We said it's not death; it was a circumvention of death. We were almost dead. We got close. We didn't actually die. And I think the answer is no. In a sense, we actually die because the the Shlah had told us that if you remove the Aleph. From the word MS, from the truth of God, the all-encompassing truth of God, you're left with the letters mace, mem, tough. And that's what Haman sought to do. And he like almost got there. He got the Jews to sin to the point where that Aleph was like disappearing. Right? And so there was like a real fear. There was real like mace hovering over us. And God saved us. And God revealed the Aleph. He revealed the Ratzon inside of us and turned the, the mace back into MS. Now, who did this? Um, Mordechai. Mordechai was the one who did this. Mordechai is referred to as the Ish Yehudi. And the word Ish Yehudi says the same Rabbi Avram Tzvi Kluger is exactly Gematria, the word Ratzon. 346. Well, do, do that again for me. Do that again for me. I got to hear Ish that one again. Yehudi. Ish, Ish Yehudi. Ish Yehudi is the So Ish Yehudi, Ish means a man. Yehudi means a Jewish man or right, like a Judean, Yehuda. 
and the gematria, the numerical value of the word ishud, is exactly what? Again, say? Ratzon, the will. So he represented like the, the super Aleph who's fighting against this whole effort. Yeah. And the verse even says it explicitly. It says it explicitly all the way at the end. The last verse in Megillah, it says, uh, I forget exactly. It says, Ratzoi l'chol echa, right? Which I think the simple understanding is he's, um, like kind of like beloved by all his, his brethren. But here it means Ratzoi l'chol echa. He brings out the Ratzon of all of the Jewish people. Um, we asked why there's so much clothing going on in the Purim story, right? Vatilbash, Esther Malchus, and he's wearing clothing, she's wearing clothing. And I think, again, that's this idea, because clothing is what covers over the external and allows us to bring out the internal, and that's the whole idea of Purim. And that's why it says, Laihudim Haisa Oira, right? And the Jews merited light. We asked, what light did they merit? They, we merited our own light. We merited back that light that we had lost, essentially, um, in the Garden of Eden. Um, when the or with an aleph got downgraded into or with an ayin, we started getting it back on Purim. And that's why it says, and the, and the Jews got light. They merited light. Cause that's what happened. That's what Purim is all about. Okay. Are we done or can I ask a question? I, I can, can I just say one more thing? Also kind of a stroke of brilliance. Go ahead. So Mordechai is called Mordechai ben Yair. No, sorry. Mordechai. How's it going? Mordechai ben Yair, ben Shimi, ben Kish. Ben Shimi, ben Kish. Okay, so I, I want to suggest, and this is a little wild, that each one of these names, Yair, Shimi, and Kish, all kind of symbolize the same idea. Now, let me, let me tell you why. Mordechai ben Yair, that makes a lot of sense. Yair means light. to light. To light, to bring light. And that's what he did. He brought out this light. Like, who did I say? Oh, you brought out this light. Okay, ben Shimi. What does the word Shimi mean? You know, if I were to ask you, what's the root word of the word Shimi? It's Shema, to hear. Here's what I want to, I want to suggest. We were saying all along that the word ayin, right, which is the, the ayin only sees the external, right? When you take the aleph and you turn it into an ayin, you're only going to see the external, right? That's kind of the wrongdoing of speaking Lashonar is you're only seeing the external. Okay. So what am I, I what, are, what is God asking us to do? He's saying, don't look at the, the external, look at the internal. Well, let me tell you something. The human eye cannot possibly see the internal. You cannot see beyond the surface. It's impossible. So what are you supposed to do? You see, uh, you see someone doing something wrong. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to listen because you can hear beyond the surface. If there's a noise going on in a different room. You can hear it, even though you can't see it. What Mordechai did, he's like, I'm seeing Jews sin. What do I do? I'm seeing sin, but I know that inside they don't want to sin. So what do I do? I got to listen. Got to listen. If you listen really closely, you'll hear it. And that's why it's Mordechai, Ben Yair. You reveal the light. How so? Ben Shimi by listening. Okay, what's Ben Kish? So this is wild. There's a, you'll know this, Rabbi Wobi. There's a, there's a Gemara in, in Bav Metziah on uh, page 85. It's a weird Gemara and it's a completely different uh, context where it says, it says, if you have an empty jar, as Estira Bilagina Kish Kish Karya. If you have an empty jar, but there's one coin and you rattle it, it makes the sound Kish Kish. <laughs> I have no explanation for what the Gemara means on a simple, level. But I want to say is like this. Mordechai sees a Jew and he looks really empty. The Jew looks like he's completely empty of mitzvot. He's like, I'm going to find it. He picks him up and he rattles him and he says, I hear kish, kish. I hear it. I hear that inner will to do good. So he's Mordechai, Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, because he brings out the kish inside of all of us. Wow. Absolute genius. Okay. So let me throw out something here. And this is so, this is a layup for you. This is a layup for you. I don't know if they have that in Canada. It's like when you slap the puck and it's just a tap in. <laughs> Rabbi Botnick is Canadian. 
So the Talmud says that Purim was a second Sinai. Is that right? Because the first Sinai, they accepted under duress, and therefore they had an out. This is the Talmud of the book of Shabbos, I think uh, 87 or 88, 88a, I think. The first Sinai, they might take to the mountain and, and put places it above them and threatens them if you accept a Torah. Great, if not, I'm going to crush you to death. And therefore they had an out. They could have said, well, we were forced, it was under, under duress. But then in the times of Achashverosh, i.e. in the Purim story, they accepted it again. They accepted it anew. So what's the layup? The layup is that the Talmud tells us that the Sinai revelation was an undoing and a fixing of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. The um, venom, so to speak, that was coursing through their veins thanks to the sin of Adam and Eve stopped at Sinai, was fixed at Sinai. And then it was restored with the, or the venom was restored with the sin of the golden calf. And if, according to what you're saying, the salvation, the transformation from death to light or to life, or both maybe light and life, that happened with the Purim story, that is the undoing, the fixing, so to speak, of the sin anew, and that's why it can be constituted as a second Sinai. I feel like you feel like that was on your notes, but you didn't say it. It's, it's too obvious. I mean, it did. It flitted through my mind. Okay. So what are the takeaways? What are the lessons here for us? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. I think you could take a lot away. I, I, I think Purim is really, um, it's really about focusing on on the good inside of all of us and, and I'll, I'll i'll end with this i think i mean i already ended but we'll end again um we know there, there's a halacha that this is seems very unphilosophical but there's the idea of pedikas chametz right you have to search for chametz right uh, and and you're supposed to do it the night before uh before pesach but if you can't for whatever reason you won't be around so I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you can start a month before. Right? A month is the maximum amount of time you could start before Pesach. You could start searching the Now, what's a month before the night before Pesach? Purim. It's Purim. So there's an amazing thing. You could start searching for Chumets, uh, um on Purim. What does that tell you? I mean, they, they're just like you hear, you got to hear something there, right? Purim is when you could begin searching for Chumets. So there's this idea I heard that there's, there's very, there's an obscurity about the term bedikas chametz, searching. What it literally means is searching chametz, and you're not searching chametz. You're searching your house. It should say bedikas habayas. You're looking. You're searching your house for chametz. You're not searching the chametz. So the philosophical answer is that the word chametz, even though obviously means leavened bread, it also refers to sin. It refers to 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 just kind of the, the negativity that we've we racked up over the, over the year. And our job is to eradicate it and burn it, you know, before Pesach. But it's more than that. It's not just to eradicate. It's to to search it and to find the inner positivity within it. There again, there's always that ratzum within. When even when you someone does the, the worst of error, there's always that little voice inside of screaming, "I want to do what's right. I want to do what's right." And it's when you focus on that where you can start really doing tshuva. It's because because tshuva, as as Rav Cook explains, is really about returning to who you really are. So instead of like hitting on yourself for doing what's wrong, you say, what did I really, really want to do? How did I really feel about myself when I did that? And when you're cognizant of that, you, it, it's a, it's a very powerful experience, a very powerful revelation that, 
the things you thought you wanted to do, you actually never wanted to do, and, and you start realizing where your heart really was all along. And that process begins on Purim, right? One month before Pesach is when you start doing Bedikas Chametz, when you start searching the Chametz. So I think that's that's important on a personal level, and it's important on a national level, that that should be your attitude when you see Jews and you, and you see someone doing something that looks ostensibly wrong. Don't write them off that, that quickly. Remember, there's always that Aleph lying beneath the, beneath the iron. Could that maybe explain why we try to justify or find positivity even in Haman? You got a dream till we're so drunk, such a stupor that even Haman could, we could find something redeeming about him. That's a very interesting point. Maybe. I mean, I never thought that there's an obligation to do that for a non-Jew. Um, I don't think there's an obligation, but it could be the, the idea, the idea that, that, that God's, that God's will at least, you know, is, is, is permeates the entire universe. And there really is no way to escape that. Uh, and you could somehow find that even within some evil like Haman. Yeah, I, I, that's a very good point, Rabbi Wolby. Well, the Talmud really does about. say, if I'm not mistaken, that the descendants of Haman studied Torah with some of the greatest sages of our time, of, of all time. So maybe we do have this historical finding some sort of positive kernel in Haman that eventually was developed into the great students that were his descendants. But let me ask you a different question. Why do we drink the wine on Purim? Oh, excellent. I'm so happy you asked that <laughs> because I forgot to say it. So here's another amazing gamachi and it's not mine. It's from Rabbi Moshe Wolfson. Okay. One of the greatest, one of the greatest tzaddikim alive today. There's a concept. It's a Kabbalistic concept, but it's found in the Talmud as well called the Yayin Hamishumar, the hidden wine, the, 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 the guarded wine, right? Have you off the top of your head? Do you know any Talmudic references to the Yayin Hamishumar? Don't, 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 don't do that to me. I, I think, isn't it with Lot and his daughters that don't they? they oh, Yayin Hamishumar? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't know. Anyways, get ready for this Kamacha. Yayin Hamishumar, the hidden wine, the, the guarded wine. So Yayin we know is 70, exact. right? Yeah, Yayin is 70, right? The 70 is exactly Gamachia, is exactly Gamachia Esther. Ooh. So he said, so the, the idea basically is that, it's kind of hard to quantify this, but you're right, the, the 70 is, is evil, but there's a way to, to bring it in and incorporate it into the, into the Aleph. Meaning the idea here is not to completely disregard the external, it's to, to kind of enmesh, to, to, to let the internal overpower the external, to bring it in. To, to bring the external inside. Do, do you understand? I, I don't know if I'm being clear. So yayin, which is ayin, which is external, can still be mishomer. It can still be guarded in a way that it remains kosher. And it remains protected. It remains insular. I was too busy doing the math. Say 51. I checked it. No, no. You, you, <laughs> okay. If I say something in Abraham Wilson, you don't have to second guess. <laughs> he, yeah, he's, he's been tried and true. So we're saying, so let, let me just can you repeat this again one more time. What with ideas? So there's a certain kind of wine that's not the uh, the 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 the, iron, the seventy the problematic wine. It's a different kind of wine, the preserved wine, and that is the wine. Just could you finish that sentence for me? It, it, it's where you take the external and you use it to to reinforce and to to assist. And to become a part of the internal you, as opposed to allowing them to be two opposing entities. I, I mean, think of it even halakhically, right? So if, if, if a non-Jew touches or, or pours wine, right? That isn't mevushal, it's not cooked, so you're not allowed to drink it because it's been influenced, right? It's very dangerous stuff, wine. It's very, it's very susceptible 
to influence. But if if a non-Jew hasn't touched it throughout the entire process or hasn't poured it, hasn't moved it, it's 100% kosher. And not only that, you we use it for, for kiddish, right? We use it for the most, the holiest moments of, of, of the week or of the year, right? So wine, wine kind of has that duality to it where it's on the one hand, it's very dangerous and very susceptible to, to negativity. But on the other hand, if it has not been subject to that, then it can actually be a very uh, a positive experience. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Talmud does say that yain just says it's explicitly yain that wine is really good for the righteous and really harmful, deleterious for the wicked. It means in the hands of Haman and his ilk, it could cause all this messing up of the systems and take the iron and infuse it upon the aleph, and it's really dangerous. But it has that quality when done properly. In moderation, like they say, when done in a channeled fashion, it could actually be an amplification, so to speak, of the olive. I, well, I, we could say quite simply. Uh, they, again, I'm totally speculating here, and none of my spitballing here is anywhere near the genius that you're unfolding here. But the Talmud does say that the Eight Sahara evil inclination is bad. It's terrible. It's trying to get you to sin. But if channeled properly, channeled correctly, the money says it's tov mode. It's it's even better than the Eitz tov. It's even better than the good inclination. So it's something which is bad and harmful and dangerous, but done properly, if it's guarded, mishumar, done properly, it can actually be a great amplification of the good and not bad at all. And that's right. That, that's the you know the thread we're I trying think, to yeah, get. I mean, you're, we're. Yeah, I'm thinking of this as we go along as well. So that's very good. Awesome. This was absolutely incredible and wonderful and spectacular. I'm going to have to come back for Pesach because we got to hear more about this. <laughs> <laughs>